0: Father, we ask that you would speak to us right now. We thank you that you are a good father who desires for your children to flourish. You tell us in your word that you are delighted in us, that you are well-pleased in us because of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his kingdom coming into this world. God, is good news for us. So help us to receive that good news. God, may you continue to apply that to our lives. As we look today into the life of Jesus and what it means to be his disciples as we cling to the promise that you will in fact see us through. God, give us the means by which we do that. Help us to understand not just the message of Jesus, but also the methods that Jesus used in his own life to stay deeply connected to you in a very chaotic and broken and violent world. And so God, would you just open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to receive the implanted word this morning. And may you do a great work, and may it bear fruit in our lives in the weeks to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, two verses this morning we're going to look at, um, verse 15 and verse 16. So I hear these words from Dr. Luke, the great physician, as he invites us to see something unique about the life of Jesus. But now even more, the report about him, that is Jesus, went abroad, and great, gro- great crowds gathered to hear him, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, it's no secret that uh, I think right now we are in the most difficult stretch of COVID-19 at this global pandemic. The World Health Organization coined a term that's been picked up by many and talked about for months now, and it's probably never been more intense than right now. It's called pandemic fatigue. Pandemic fatigue describes this kind of internal state of just demotivation. We're just not motivated to do what we know that we need to do uh, to kind of thrive in this moment. Um, it's, It's a moment that describes a kind of an internal depletion, like a dangerous depletion internally. Uh, even maybe a burnout, you could say, that's leading to all kinds of really dangerous mental health struggles. We were talking about this with our medical team recently, uh, and one of our, uh, members who works for the Marion County Public Health Department was just talking about the epidemic right now of mental health, uh, struggles. Uh, nationally we read that 40 percent of adults are reporting high levels of anxiety and depression, substance abuse is on the rise. Uh, there's been a rise in teen suicidal ideation. We see across the country. We have experienced this year um, historic levels of violence in our city. We had the most people murdered in Indianapolis this year that we ever have. I think it was something like 215, 218 uh, image bearers of God killed this year. We see just the rise of all kinds of that stuff happening around us. We experience in the last couple months, and in, in the last couple years, an intensification of things that have always been around, but, but seem to be just f- filling up our news feeds incessantly, racial violence, political violence. And it invites this kind of pressure. I don't know about you, I, I just feel this pressure to kind of be present to all of these things that are happening, and to be uh, at least online like constantly speaking out and constantly engaged with what's happening around. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this. I had two conversations, one with my wife, Emily, and another with an African-American pastor friend of mine, Jamal Williams, in the past couple of weeks, and we were just talking about this pressure that we feel to, uh, to, to speak and to be present. And uh, I remember January 6th when the Capitol insurrection happened, even on that day, Wednesday is usually a day that I set aside for just study and prayer um, and, and kind of getting ready for the sermon. And I had my phone turned off, and, uh, and I was just kind of dialed into the message. I think I can remember something in the emotional Healthy series we were doing. And about 3 o'clock, a staff member calls me. And it's like, hey, did you hear what happened today? And I was like, no, I have no idea. My stuff turned off and I get on and it's just like this massive inflow of everything that's happening. And and it just captured my attention and I couldn't put my phone down and I found my mind just racing. Um, And then, you know, obviously like everything that's been happening since then, on top of all of the just global injustices that we see because we have access to to news feeds and we have access to cell phone videos. And it's just this kind of tired, this kind of fatigue, this kind of depletion that never stops. And I was talking with Jamal, and, 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 and Jamal said, you know, I was like, man, I just—I I, I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious. And I said, how, how do you deal with this? Like, how do you do this? And Jamal said, man, obviously as an African-American, like, this isn't new to me. This has been my whole life. This is, uh, this is something I live in all the time. But Jamal said to me, and he said to Emily and I many times— Sometimes you just have to pull away. Sometimes you just have to turn it off and step back and learn when not to speak. Learn when not to be present, so that when you're present, when you speak, you're able to do so from a place of strength, not a a place of depletion. And, And that just encouraged me. It almost gave me permission to step back and say, wow, like, I don't have to be on all the time. There's this kind of temptation in this moment. I saw saw this, at least, uh, and this is what we were talking about on the 6th, to be performative in our presence. To get online and you see people almost rushing in to fill the space, put out statements. And again, it's right to condemn things that are evil. It's right to call out things that are wrong. We should be doing that. But in our rushing in, sometimes the words that we use and the, the energy we bring is not a redemptive energy, it's not redemptive words. And we can bring more anxiety, and we can actually ratchet up the anxiety in the system rather than being a non-anxious, peaceful presence. And there's a need for just discernment in this moment. So one of the things that I've learned, um, really from a different tradition of the church than I grew up in, uh, the black church tradition, uh, both my friends here in the city and around the country, and one of the reasons why I think it's so timely for us to, like, participate in Black History Month right now is that we learn from those to whom this is not new how to be a non-anxious presence in the world. That, that, this, this whole series, this little mini-series we're doing here is called Seeing Us Through, and it's based on a prayer by Harriet Tubman, and it just goes like this, very simple. And She would pray this prayer as she uh, exercised her duties and responsibilities risking her life to free slaves in the Underground Railroad. She would say to God, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you got to see me through. You've got to see me through. And this is one of the things you learn when you study the civil rights movement, actually. You study the history of the African American church, is there was this understanding that to get through required a deep connection with God. It required a deep reservoir of prayerfulness and attentiveness to God. That was just a regular rhythm. I mean, you read this in the life of Fannie Lou Hamer, if you've ever read any of her biographies, you see the same thing. There was an intense engagement in the world, but then a necessity of pulling back to withdrawal, to be with God, to lean into God and say, without you, this is not possible. I mean, that's one of the ways that actually the movement, the civil rights movement, which is a deeply Christian movement, got co-opted by a secular world. This part of it got scrubbed out. We forget that there's a deep spiritual undercurrent that undergirded this movement, was a wellspring of energy and life and vitality and perseverance and endurance for the movement. This has been documented in history, not just in uh, the uh, fight for freedom in America, uh, but um, Arnold Toynbee, who was uh, probably one of the most well-known historians in the world, he worked uh, and taught, he was a professor, he wrote a massive tome of a book called The Study of History." And one of the key insights in uh, his chapter on the rise and the fall of civilizations, he looks at all the major civilizations of the world and studies why do some rise and why do some fall, and are there patterns and themes that we can learn. And in this book he notices and he points out this pattern of what he calls withdraw and return. Withdraw and return, he, he says essentially that every culture, every great civilization is healed and is rejuvenated by what he calls creative minorities, creative minorities who are led by creative leaders who follow this pattern of withdrawal and return. To break this kind of spell of living in in kind of dominant society with its values that oftentimes are toxic to renewal movements. Um, to break that spell that society has over them, these leaders w- learned that they have to withdraw from society, both literally at times, but oftentimes figuratively, emotionally, in order to wean their sense of identity and meaning from the surrounding society. And in doing so, they developed this deep kind of knowledge and wisdom and power. And then they were able to return to society, literally and figuratively, bringing the fruit of their labor— for the benefit of others. Toynbee, uh, he gives all kinds of historic examples in different civilizations, but he actually says the paradigm for this pattern is the life of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus, and we see that here in Luke chapter 5. Jesus, in the midst of the busyness of his ministry, there's a growing kind of throng of people, crowds of people gathering around Jesus, wanting to be healed, pressing into him because he's got the life of God flowing through him. And there are miraculous things that are happening. I mean, the true renewal of society coming. From, I mean, you can imagine Jesus in our kind of modern uh, contemporary way of thinking about this as a young rising social activist, but not one like trained at Harvard that comes from the bourgeois, so to speak, but actually one that comes up from poverty, comes from the outside, from, uh, not from the elite centers of power, but from poverty. And he rises up, not seeking to build a platform, write books, become a thought leader, consultant, brother one who lives among the people. Touches them, walks with them, prays for them, heals them. And Jesus, in the midst of all this busyness, sandwiched between two miracles, we have Luke chapter five verse sixteen. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now I was astounded this week reading commentaries, or at several that I have on my shelf. Maybe I have the wrong commentaries on how little. Emphasis is placed on this one verse. It's almost like a throwaway comment. Yeah, Jesus would pray. And then back to the miracles. But I want us to stop and pause because I think this is an important rhythm for Jesus. Jesus would go out into the, it says, your translation may say, desolate places. That word desolate is the word eremos in the Greek. That can be translated a number of different ways the wilderness, the desert. Deserted place, the desolate place, the solitary place. Some of my favorites, the quiet place or the lonely place. Ten times in the book of Luke, matter of fact, he mentions the Eremos. And it says that Jesus didn't just sometimes go there, he frequently withdrew. He, this, this was a practice, this was a habit for Jesus. Matter of fact, if you trace out Eremos in the book of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry in the Eremos, And he ends his ministry in the Aremos, in the garden, praying, pouring out his heart to God before he's killed. You could say that the Aremos is one of the key themes in the book of Luke. We've touched on some of these before, so I'm not going to go into detail, but I just want to remind you uh, some of the things that happened in the Aremos, why it was such a significant place for Jesus. It was a place to hear the voice of his father. He starts his ministry in Luke chapter 3 being baptized in the wilderness, in the Ramos, in the desert, where John the Baptist lived, another person who understood this pattern of withdrawal and return. And the, the, the heavens open up, and the only time we hear the audible voice of the Father in the Gospels, he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus derives his identity and his calling in the midst of the noisiness of the world around him and all the voices clamoring and claiming him as their own. Jesus hears one voice from heaven that defines his identity and calling, and he gives him a sense of mission in the world. In Luke chapter 4, you turn right over into the next passage, Jesus is then driven by the Holy Spirit out into the Eremos, and we see that the Eremos becomes a place of a, a battlefield. It becomes a place where Jesus battles evil in the world, it becomes a place of spiritual warfare. The Eremos is also a place where Jesus wrestles honestly with his emotions before God. You see that in Matthew 26, and we looked at that just a few weeks ago, where he's able to name his sorrow, his sadness, his anguish, his despair, and bring it before God honestly. When we get alone, we do battle oftentimes with our inner world, our emotions. Most importantly, though, for us, I want us to see that it is a place for Jesus of retreat. It is a place of Withdrawal, where he retreats and returns to communion with the Father. Let me give you a couple different examples of this. You see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus had this rhythm again of going out, rise. I mean, I could lit- literally, you could just do a study on this. There are dozens of these in the Gospels, but let me just give you a few. Rising very early in the morning, again, at a time where in the book of Mark, things are happening quickly, Jesus is moving from healing to healing. The crowds are pressing in on him. And he pulls back very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to the Eremos, so desolate place. And there he prayed. Mark chapter 6. He gathers his disciples around him in the midst of the busyness of ministry. The apostles returned to jesus and told him all they had done and taught they're excited look at how amazing we are look at all the things that we've done look at our achievements jesus and he said to them come away by yourselves to a desolate place to the eremos and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves the dot 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 they feed thousands of people And then notice immediately afterwards, Mark draws our attention back to Jesus. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. What's interesting about Jesus is the more popular that he became, the more the demands of ministry increased, the demands for his time and his attention, the more opportunity he had to parlay that into a platform, the more frequently he knew he needed to withdraw. Now, I'd submit to you, I'm just going to say about myself, I don't know about you, my life tends to work the opposite. The busier I get, the, the more opportunities I have to build my platform, the more tempted I am to not withdraw and pray. The busier we get, It's all of a sudden like, man, it's been days since I've spent any sort of quality time praying with God. But this was Jesus's rhythm. His life in the world was anchored by his life with God in the quiet places in prayer. This connection is so thick in the book of Luke that we looked last week at the Lord's prayer in Luke chapter 11. The disciples at one point come to Jesus, seeing this deep prayer life that he had, it's right there in verses one and two before the Lord's prayer, and they say, would you teach us how to pray? They saw that his power flowed from his private prayer life with God, and they say, would you teach us to pray like that? All kinds of Christians have, throughout the ages, seen this way of life in Jesus and followed him into it. One of the most well-known examples many of us maybe are not familiar with in the broader kind of evangelical church is that of the desert fathers and mothers. In the fourth century when Constantine basically declared Christianity to be a state-sponsored religion and they, for the first time in centuries, go from being the persecuted minority to being the dominant majority. What always happens when, when Christianity comes into the center of power is it begin to compromise itself. It began to compromise itself, and there was this civil religion that kind of crept up, this kind of civil nationalism that began to crep, uh, creep up in the Roman Empire. And there were a group of women and, and men who said, hey, we don't want to be corrupted. And so they literally, like following the example of Jesus, go out into the desert to pray, to find solitude, to do battle with their demons, to, to hear the voice of their father, and this became kind of the wellspring of the genesis of the monastic movements. I mean, the word for monastic monk just means solitary, this, this finding and questing for a solitary place to be alone with God, not just to be alone with God, but to actually then re-engage the world from a more healthy place. They, they had this saying, the desert fathers and mothers would say, we withdraw from the world for the world. We withdraw from the world for the world, and they would come back into the world, and they had a massive impact on their communities. This rhythm of withdrawal and return, kind of in the way of Jesus' spiritual teachers, as they've unpacked this and kind of collated this tradition, this is what we just call the practice of solitude. we have taught on this before, the practice of solitude. Solitude is just simply withdrawing from the presence of others to be alone with God. That's what makes it different. So, so here's the thing, solitude, when you think solitude, oftentimes you think isolation. Now, some of you I know are introverts, and you're like, I can think of nothing better like Jesus than to send everybody away and just get alone and get some me time. Okay, this is not me time. This is not isolation. This is not escapism. This is not the same as being an introvert, okay? This is actually not even the same thing as mindfulness so we it's mindfulness is kind of like uh a secular solitude right it, and again i'm not i'm not completely against it i think we can spit out some of the bones and eat the meat but the mindfulness is about being present in the moment by myself solitude is about learning to be alone with god two totally different things This has been one of the more upstream disciplines that I've had to learn for myself. I'm an extrovert, right? And, and I love to be with people. I love to be out and about and in crowds. It gives me energy, gives me life. And, and this journey uh, over the last 10 or 12 years of my own life has taken me into some deep places of solitude, and I've learned how much I need solitude. We need solitude to sustain our life in the world, and it's so hard. Like, if you've ever tried to do it for like five minutes, just be still and quiet, Get away. It sounds really awesome. The first time I ever had a day of solitude, I had an anxiety panic attack. It's terrifying. But we need solitude. Solitude is a, is a healthy, essential, not just discipline, but like an invitation from God. Henry Nouwen, who wrote a book called The Way of the Heart and talked a lot about solitude, one of my favorite authors on solitude, says this Solitude is not a private therapeutic place, rather, it is the place of conversion. The place where the old self dies and the new self is born. The place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude—I love this—is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society, and we continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. That is, that, that mask that we wear to the, the project an image of our self, but the, that's not really the true self in Christ that we talked about several weeks ago. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self, and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. He says, actually goes on to say, there can be no spiritual life without silence and solitude. It's the beginning. It's the hardest, but it's probably the most foundational of all the spiritual practices The reason we need solitude is, is I think, twofold. One uh, is we need to commune with God. We need to experience transformation. We need to be able to bring our full self before God in prayer, to get away from the noise, the distractions, the busyness of life. As Dallas Willard says uh, so frequently, uh, again, one of my favorite writers on discipleship, he says, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. We need to be able to step back from that hurry. And be alone with God to hear the voice of our Father saying, in Jesus, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. When we get alone with God, all kinds of things begin to, to surface in our inner worlds, right? It's like we're being shaken all the time, and then all that stuff begins to settle down when we get quiet and begins to rise up to the surface. And it is as Jesus experienced in his own Ramos. The eremos is a battlefield, It it is a a place where we battle with the demonic. It is a place where we battle with our idols, with our attachments, with our sin patterns, with our addictions to the approval of other people, listening too much to the voice of others and then living compulsively to please others or to be against others, but not coming from a, a true place of rootedness in God. And there's this kind of inner anxiety, that plagues us, this restlessness deep inside of us. So solitude becomes this place where all of those scaffoldings that we use to keep those things at bay get kicked out. Now all of a sudden we are face to face alone with ourself, with God, but it's a safe place. Imagine it to be like a womb where God encloses us within his grace and his peace and his love and he invites us to be ourselves, to be transform, to be conformed. It's a place of renewal. It's a place of repentance. It's a place where we turn away from everything other than the voice of God. And it's a returning of ourselves to God. That is the imitation. And so it's this deep place of communion with God and transformation in the presence of God. And here's the other thing that then fuels our life in the world. As we begin to practice solitude, now in who uh, in one of my favorite books uh, called "The Wounded Healer," um, which is really just a book about how to how to be present to others in the midst of a broken world, he he, he calls this uh, this ability to be alone with God the fruit of that. He says is creating what he calls contemplative critics. Contemplative critics, people who are present to God and then able to be present to the world. And that word critic just means like kind of what we think of as like social engagement, right? The ability to critique what's happening around us, but to do it from a place of strength, from a place of centeredness in God, from a place of compassion, a place of discernment rather than compulsion. See, when we get alone, we, we learn and we see in our own hearts that nothing human is alien to us. So the things that we're critiquing the world, we see first in ourselves. We see the injustice and idolatry first in ourselves. We say, woe is me, before we say, woe is you. And that's the, that's the gift of contemplation, is we're able to look inside and see our own sin and confess it first. We learn the compassion of Christ. Jesus had deep compassion for people, even the people that would eventually murder him because he was able to view them through the lens of the fact that they're image bearers of God. They're not just enemies to be destroyed. They're human beings to be loved. They're sheep, Jesus said, who are harassed and helpless like people without a shepherd. So prayer clarifies our vision of other people, and it moves them from being these Enemies or dehumanized objects in our imagination, obstacles to be overcome, enemies to be obliterated, to image bearers who are lost and broken and wounded people just like us. And we're able to then have this vision of the world, to have a discernment, a purification of our awareness where we can look out into the world and we can know and be in touch with what's essential and what's eternal. And we are able to see through the idols and the power structures of the world and to say, yes, this is what really matters and I need to live my life in accord with those things that really matter. And then we're able to engage the world selectively, strategically from a sense of, from a place of strength. And so in that sense, our our solitude is not just for ourselves. Our solitude is for the world. And I believe if we're going to Make it through this season of so much fatigue, exhaustion, depletion, burnout, violence, rage, depression, even suicide. We must reconnect with this invitation that Jesus shows us what it means to be fully human, to withdraw to communion with our Father, not just for ourselves, but for the world. Thomas Merton trappist monk wrote a book on solitude that i read actually last year on my sabbatical i had some time off and i was reading through this book in the introduction he says this and it's a little long so just kind of bear with me but i found it to be really helpful as we think about our calling in the world i just want to share this and i want to share how we are going to invite you into this in this next season and then we'll we'll pray and we'll take communion together here's what he says society depends for its existence on the inviolable personal solitude of its members. Society to merit its name must be made up not of numbers or mechanical units but of persons. To be a person implies responsibility and freedom. And both these imply a certain interior solitude, a sense of personal integrity, a sense of one's own reality and of one's ability to give himself to society or to refuse that gift. When men are merely—I mean, does this not sound like the moment in which we live? When men are merely submerged in a mass of impersonal human beings pushed around by automatic forces, they lose their true humanity, their integrity, their ability to love, their capacity for self-determination. When society is made up of men who know no interior solitude, it can no longer be held together by love, and consequently, it is held together by a violent— and abusive authority. But when men are violently deprived of the solitude and freedom which are their due, the society in which they live becomes putrid. It festers with servility, resentment, and hate. No amount of technological progress will cure the hatred that eats away the vitals of materialistic society like a spiritual cancer. The only cure is and always must be spiritual. What is said here about solitude is not just a recipe for hermits. It is a bearing on the whole future of man and of his world, and especially on the future of religion. This is the invitation from the way of Jesus to us in this moment where there's so much violence, so much chaos, so much exhaustion. And it's not that the pandemic created that. What happened on January 6th didn't create that. It's just accelerated it. It's brought it more to the front, and it's increased the intensity of it. But we must, as a people, learn to resist these formative powers of a fatigued society and enter into a deep solitude with God. And that's our invitation to you in this Lenten season. We're going to talk about this on Ash Wednesday. We're going to talk about what it looks like to return, as Isaiah 30 says, and in rest and return, find our salvation. That's what Isaiah says. In rest and return, you will find your salvation. We want to invite us as a community to... And a ramos, to a desolate place, to the lonely place, a place of returning to God as our source of life.